I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Judges. And today will be Judges chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, the Pew Bible there, uh, in the Pew, that should be page number 238, would be Judges chapter 9. And this is picking up where we left off, the end of chapter 8 last week. And we should complete chapter 9 together this morning. I would encourage you from this point on, however... If you'd like to, and I would invite you to do so, encourage you to do so, read ahead in the book of Judges, finishing this out during the summertime and beginning our study again in John uh, this fall, will require that we pick up the pace from this point. There are 21 chapters in the book of Judges, and uh, we've been at it for a good while and are at chapter 9, but the way the story is told... We'll get into more lengthy accounts, especially with Jephthah and then with Samson. And uh, there'll be some, we won't, in other words, cover as much reading out loud together. And it will help your learning experience to read through those ahead of schedule so that you don't miss anything. But let's begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 9. This is from the English Standard Version. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbabel rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. Verse 3, his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal, Berith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah, and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbabel, seventy men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. This is God's word. Let's ask for his help to understand and obey it. Father in heaven, we thank you for another Sunday. We thank you for another sermon. We thank you for another study of your word. With our Bibles open, we ask that you open our heart, open our head, help us to understand what this means, and help us to obey it. We ask this in your name. Amen. Around about 2002, which is almost two decades ago, after an attack in New York, we put together what has been known as the Department of Homeland Security. And it's been their task since to protect the citizens of the United States of America here on our own soil. Our armed forces 
Their job is to do the same thing, but for the most part, abroad on a more global scale. But for Homeland Security, with a $40 billion budget and almost 230,000 employees, their job is to keep us safe. But they would tell you that the most difficult thing for them to do is to account for not an enemy that moves here or immigrates or travels on a visa or a tourist for that matter, but one of our own who for no reason, without any profile and under the radar, would open fire in, say, a, a, a business or a shopping mall or a school or a church. And the reason why it's so difficult is because it's an inside job. So far in Judges, what we've seen is attacks from the outside. This is the first inside job. Abimelech is a Hebrew. And he's going to attack other Hebrews. And we're going to start to see parts of the cycle in Judges that was very clear to watch so far or heretofore lose some of its components. There's no outer enemy that God gives the people of Israel into bondage under as part of his accountability and punishment, really, for not living up to their end of a covenant that he promised on his own character. So from this point on, we're not going to see a lot of that. When we get to Samson, it's the Philistines involved. We know them clearly to be the enemy. But in this case, Israel's defeat is an inside job. And it starts off by this man who's the son of one of Judge's most well-known characters, which is Gideon. Remember from last week, what Abimelech means, his name means, I'm the king's son. That's this one that we were introduced to last week. Well, he's decided he wants to grab some power. And his plan is very calculated, and it seems as though he spent a lot of time thinking about it. And what we read a moment ago involves his appealing to the self-interests of those he's related to on his mother's side, those who live in the town of Shechem. And his campaign is under the, the banner, which is better for you? That's how he starts out. Instead of saying, this is good for me... He wants to know which is better for them, that there's 70 people telling them what to do or just one person telling them what to do who happens to be one of their own related by his mother's family who was Gideon's concubine. So that's how all this works out. And rather than appealing to the right thing to do, he appeals to what works best for them. Abimelech wins their vote by claiming to be one of their own. And in this case, we have a clear example that blood is thicker than brains. <laughs> because this man's not qualified in the least bit to be their king, uh, much less their dog catcher. We're going to find out that this is the most dangerous thing that anyone could do to get in league with this man. Now, the elders of the city hand over good pagan money. If you notice where the money came from, it comes from the house of Baal which they'd gone in league with after Gideon died. What did Gideon do was the first thing against the Midianites. God told him to do something at home first. What was that? 
knock down the image of Baal and destroy the temple. Well, they've built it back and it's running well and has plenty of money. So they give money from this pagan shrine, 70 pieces of silver in pay to help him hire worthless men, as they're described, for the purpose of executing his 70 brothers. One piece of silver per each. Now, the idea here, this, this, this description of, of one stone or m- murdering them on one stone, that's uncertain. We don't know exactly what that means. We have little context of anything similar in the scriptures and not much extra biblically. But it would make sense that to do so could only happen by murdering them one after another if it's on one rock. So this was not at all a quick attack on unexpected or unexpecting victims but a plan calculated for brutality and terror. That's how he begins, by killing all his brothers one at a time on a rock. And we just assume that it was public, so that everyone knew who was in charge. Note to self in reading a story like this, beware of a politician who calls you his brother and wants money to go kill his real ones. But that's what's going on here. Uh, in talking this out with someone, usually do this to gather points of a sermon together. It's good to bounce things off others. They commented, it kind of makes you think of situations where you've got one person who's ready to run off with someone else who's leaving the person they're married to in order to do it without thinking, at what point will they do that to you, if they're willing to run off on the one they're married to, to be with you, why in the world would you want anything to do with them? But sometimes that's the way, in the moment we think we've got something working, it's a good deal, and wholehearted trust is given over to someone who's only going to spell the last chapters of, of the scenario with destruction. So they give the money, he goes and kills his brothers. And we're going to learn later that he's not going to get away with any of it. In fact, we're actually given a glimpse of this in the previous chapter. If you're still there, the beginning of chapter 9, if you look at the last two verses of chapter 8, And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And this kind of puzzled us last week. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he'd done to Israel. We learned in chapter 8 that he perjured himself and basically ruined his reputation. But that does not discount or erase the fact that God had chosen Gideon in his sovereignty to free the people from the hand of Midian. God chose him. So to, to refuse to honor him in some way is to refuse to honor God. So if, you're, if you like to make outlines and notes in your Bible, this is a long chapter and we won't read all of it. But what we saw in the first six verses is Abimelech crowned king. And what we're going to read here in a moment in verse 7 is Jotham's fable. If you recall, one of those sons escaped. So he didn't kill them all. One's still at large, the youngest one. And we're going to hear from him here in verse 7 all the way down through verse 21. He's going to tell them a story, a fable that is. And then from verse 22 to 55 is Abimelech's ruin. The biggest part of the whole chapter describes how it all blows up in his face. And then the last two verses, 56 and 57, 
are a summary of the way God demonstrated the principle of retribution, where everybody gets what they deserve. So look at verse 7. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. And here's his fable. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them. You think, what is this guy talking about? Well, they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, shall I leave my abundance or my my fatness? Olive oil, that's what he's referring to. By which God and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees. Question mark. The tree said to the fig tree. So it didn't work out with the olive tree. So they go to the next one. You come and reign over us. Verse 11. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? So second rejection of kingship. Verse 12. The tree said to the vine, the third offer, You come reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? So three rejections. Fourth offer. Verse 14. Then all the trees say to the bramble, you come reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, if in good faith you are anointing me king over you, which was a way of saying, if you're not just messing around here, you really want me to be your king, then come take refuge in my shade. How many of you ever sat in the lovely shade of a big thorn bush? It's not meant for shade. It's meant for the rest of the animal kingdom. Stay away from me. This will hurt if you get too close. When you're trying to clear brush and you get caught on one of those things. It's like it's just designed to wrap around your leg like a tentacle or something. And work through your jeans and get into your skin. This is meant to sound absurd. The bramble come Refuge in my shade, there's no such things. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. If, if, if you're messing with me here, you'll pay for it, is what is said here. So, from the acoustically advantageous position on top of the mountain with all of Shechem down in uh, the valley, in the middle of a coronation ceremony, They hear this voice hollering, hey, y'all, look up here, and begins to tell this story. Um, The fable has more to do with the style of Abimelech's kingship and his qualifications or lack thereof, rather than a repudiation on kingship. Some commentators want to say that the fable has a lot to do with the fact that kingship is bad across the board and Israel has no business in it. But as far as the context goes, that doesn't really fit this. It'll fit later with Samuel and Saul and then David. But for here, this is all about Abimelech's worthlessness. That's what this story is about. The other plants, the olive, the fig, the grapevine were all too busy in useful ways to bother with political involvement. And they were better for that group doing what they were gifted and created to do. But the bramble had no business being in charge of these is the way the story goes. And that seems to be the point. 
Usually those who would make the best public servants are actually serving and busy doing so. Some of the ones that aren't at all fit for it are the ones who seem to want it the worst. Fascinating story to look at the backgrounds of the likes of uh, Adolf Hitler and how in the world he was able to rise to power in the context that he did and why in the world any of that ever happened. Fascinating story. Some similarities with what we're looking at here. But the following paragraph, beginning in verse 16, and we'll start summarizing here in a minute, but I want to read a little bit more. Uh, the end of this one gives our first parenthetical statement, uh, serves as an editorial comment by the author to tell us what's going on. Where is he going with all this? So Jotham has a little more to say. He's going to interpret his fable here in verse 16. Now, therefore, if you, people in, Sh in Shechem, acted in good faith and integrity, no, they didn't. When you made Abimelech king, and if you've dealt well with Jerubbabel and his whole house. No, he killed all them. Verse 17, he just cuts to the chase. My father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. You have risen against my father's house this day, have killed his son, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his female servant king over the leaders of Shechem, because he's your relative. If then you've acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubbabel and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him rejoice in you. Here's where he brings in his story. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour Shechem, and let fire come out from Shechem and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beir and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. I bet he did. So real quick, tells the story, tells them all they're cursed, and then leaves. Verse 22, Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. So that's the meanwhile. The story progresses three years. And here's this editorial comment. Verse 23, And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. That the violence done to the seventy sons of Jerubbabel, that's Gideon, might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hand to kill his brothers. This is called retribution. They're going to get what they deserve. So the reader, we're reading and working our way through this, when we see that they hadn't acted in good faith or in integrity, that's a joke, then we should expect fire, right? From Abimelech toward Shechem and from Shechem toward Abimelech. That's what we should expect. And then the narrator, the author, gives us this idea here. God sending an evil spirit. So for the sake of time, let's just summarize what is given in the next few verses. The men of Shechem, because now there's this evil spirit, bad blood between them and the king, even though it's only three years into his reign. They begin to set up ambushes along the major thoroughfares in and out of the city. They're setting up an ambush for Abimelech, who's, who doesn't live there. He's one of them, but he's ruling over them from some remote location. And while he's gone, they're robbing everyone who's coming in and out. So what better way to give your, uh, your commander-in-chief a black eye 
than to make sure nobody can safely travel in and out of your place. Who wants to live under that guy? It's cramping everyone's style and affecting their trade. Life is miserable now. And it's Shechem who's stoking these fires. So in the middle of all that, some guy from the town who's supposed to be a true, real resident and heir of the man who started the whole city in the first place, his name is Gaal, G-A-A-L. He's probably one of the former elders in the town, but he didn't like Abimelech and he had to leave when he came in. But now that things are going wrong and he's got some cover, he's back and he hopes to take the power from Abimelech. So what does he do? During the period of the harvest for the, the vineyards, they do this as good Canaanites, who are actually Hebrews, should do. They have a big huge party where they reap everything and tread it all out and put all this new wine up so that it can ferment for the next year. And they drink what they've got from the previous year at that party. And the reason why is because Baal is the god of agriculture and fertility. And if you really want good crops and lots of babies, you've got to worship him by drinking the previous year's vintage and having a really wild party. That's about the best way I know how to explain it all in a mixed audience. But that's how they worship their god. These are Hebrews, mind you, doing exactly what the Canaanites did. So this man, Gaal, stands up in the middle of the temple shrine where they have this party annually every year. And uh, fortified with uh, Shechem's best liquid courage, he begins to curse Abimelech. If I was in charge, I'd take care of that guy. He acts like he's one of us, but he's not. I'm really one of you. And I can solve all your problems. So that rolls off. And the next scene is Abimelech's right-hand man finding out about the party and letting him know and advising him what to do as a result of it. So Abimelech with some men come and camp outside the city overnight waiting for everyone to come out in the morning. And the way that it worked in this ancient civilization was you had a city with a bunch of walls and for protection you slept inside at night but all your fields with all your your grain and all your wine your olive tree all that was on the outside and you'd go out to work during the day and you'd come in at night so if you really wanted to get everybody in one spot at one time you camp out overnight when they're all in and you ambush them when you come out so if you want gay all that's how to do it and that's what they did and the scene that's probably most dramatic in this part of the story is Gaal getting up in the morning. Maybe he's got his coffee with him, I don't know, but he goes to the city gate where all the head honchos conduct business. And about the time he stands in the gate, Abimelech and his men break their cover. And Abimelech's right-hand man, Zebel, standing there with Gaal, and the way it's written even in the ESV is still kind of funny. He says... Where's your mouth now? Mr. Big Shot, who cursed Abimelech and said he wanted to fight. Come on, bring your army. There's the army. Now it's time to fight. So that's exactly what happens. And in the process of time, they run Gaal and his people out. Gaal won't see him no more. He's gone. And it looks as if skirmish over. 
Abimelech still has his power. Everything's great. Everything's fine and dandy. Look at verse 42. And this is where you'll see the absolute madness of a disqualified king who shouldn't be. On the following day, the people went out into the field. That's what they do. So business as usual. And Abimelech was told... And he took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw the people coming out of the city. So he rose against them and killed them. He's going to kill them for daring to think that another man could be in charge. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate and the city. And while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day and captured the city and killed the people who were in it and raised the city and sowed it with salt. That last part, sowed it with salt. Uh, the idea being that salty ground doesn't grow anything. Dry lake beds don't have any plants on them. But he didn't have enough salt. It was very costly to sow the whole city. So it's a symbolic spreading like with the seed spreader of salt all over the place just to say in a, in, in a manner of speaking the place is cursed and its prospects for rebuilding are cursed too. So total wipeout of the city itself. Verse 46, when all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of El Barith. That's the same building where the party took place. Evidently it's outside the city some distance away and everybody has escaped to it and they're hiding there so Abimelech between verse 46 and 50 walks up the hill cuts a bough off the tree puts it on his shoulder tells everybody do what I've just done and they begin to stack bush and timber all around the bottom of this house of Baal where the big party took place and they set it on fire and it'll tell you there that about a thousand men and women burnt with it. So total destruction of this. Now you got Abimelech. And he doesn't have a city to be in charge of. A king with no subjects. So he needs another town, right? Well, look at verse 50. And Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. Well, there's his next notch on his belt. But there was a strong tower within the city and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled into it and shut themselves in and they went to the roof of the tower. So this is similar to the same story. It's just a different town. And their tower happens to be inside the city walls. So Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire because the door is probably made of wood rather than stone. Verse 43, and a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Now, we already read that fire came out of Abimelech on the city of Shechem. But now fire from Shechem, in a roundabout way, is now coming out against Abimelech. Look what he does, verse 44. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. And this young man thrust him through and he died. Now it's interesting enough that he didn't mind at all using his mother as a means to begin his 
struggle for power. I'll use my mother's relatives. But he didn't want anything to do with a woman who would take that power away from him by throwing a rock on his head. So a little bit of a conflict of, of, of affections here. And then 55, which probably says more than about everything else up to this part as to his leadership abilities. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Don't have time for this. Guy's dead. He was crazy. I'm going home. And it's over. And it's an awful story. Verse 56, the last word. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father and killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. Well, for Abimelech, that was literally on his head. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. As if the curse was lifted, they just all went home. And that's the end of the story. Nothing about them having peace for a certain amount of time. Nothing about him being dead. Nothing about them returning back to idolatry. No, they're set in idolatry. So it's, a, it's an odd ball story, a long dramatic record of the ninth chapter of the book of Judges. So, where do we see ourselves in this? You say, I hope we don't. Uh, what can we learn from this if we don't see ourselves? Well, there's a number of themes here, and I've, I've picked out four. There, there are more. These are, are prominent enough to be able to see them clearly. And with each of these themes, we'll assign a point, and we can number them. But these are just things we're going to draw out to ask those questions. What, what, what's this for me here? Where do I see myself? Where's my heart in the same trouble that their heart is in, and so forth? Well, the first one has to do with influence. And this would have to go back to Gideon and his relationship to his son. After all, Abimelech is the son of Gideon. And whether or not he spent a lot of time with him, or if they were separated somewhat because this was not necessarily his wife, but his concubine, we don't know. But he was given the name, my daddy is king. What we do know from combining chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9, is if there were one long family story starting in uh, Ophrah with Gideon. The character flaws of Gideon are seen as character failure in his son Abimelech. It only goes from bad to worse. Now, the point, if you're writing down the points, point number one, what we tolerate in moderation, our children will likely tolerate in excess. You might want to change the word. What we excuse in moderation. Our children will likely excuse in excess. Not always, but it's likely. And the point here with Gideon and his flaws is just that. We're all flawed people. None of us are perfect. There are no perfect dads. And there are no perfect children. But why is it that it seems that if we take an inch, a child may take a mile? But it seems to be the case, and quite dramatically from this story here. The problems that we have in our homes are not unlike the problems that Gideon had in his. And I'm pretty sure it's the same in your home as it is at the Mooneyham home. 
The struggles usually are not between a clear-cut good versus evil and which should we do today, right? It's usually a war between good versus best and what should we do today. Because good can be a lot more fun than best. Would you agree? And it all has to do with the way we decide to pick and choose in this life that's similar to a buffet, but at the end we pay for it. And I could use an illustration, an example that, that would be very clear, but I'm not so sure you would all agree with it, and most of you probably won't like it. I don't like it. But it's this. Either our money or our schedule. We both spend them, don't we? Our time and our money. And I think you could probably get in more trouble in a church talking about people's time these days than you can their money. It used to be their money. Don't talk about their money. Well, now it's don't talk about their time or where they are or what they're doing. But we usually spend our time and our money based around our own priorities. I've heard it said, show me a person's checkbook, I'll show you what's important to them. Show me their planner, I'll show you what's important to them. But when we're picking and choosing and assigning all these things, what we are saying out of our mouth may not nearly be as important as what we're doing with our time and our money as far as our kids are involved. Some things communicate more loudly with their children, especially as they're growing up and they don't have adult minds yet. If you tell them, this right here is important, we don't spend any time in it, you're actually telling them it's not. And if this church, or any of these things that Christians should have as priority, you're saying it's important, but there's no expenditure of time. You're telling your kids it's not important. So here's two things, and these are extra, but the point was made, I might as well give you something to fight with. One thing a parent needs to always remember and never forget is their own depravity. Before you ever talk about your kids and what they should or shouldn't do, you remember you're depraved, that your heart is desperately wicked. You can't know it, and it'll lie to you. So your self-image as a Christian, your, your, your ability to lead your home, uh, your ability to understand the scriptures, your, your uh, stature as an upstanding, fine Christian man or woman, isn't anywhere near as close to as accurate as it really is. You'll tell yourself it's better. You'll justify your flaws and failures. You'll always bend it in your own favor. So all your plans for your children and the way you lead them by example, if it's concocted in your own brain, it'll probably cause you trouble. If it's anchored in an explanation and clarity of the scriptures, then you won't go wrong. And it won't lie to you. So understand your own depravity. And, and, and distrust your own ability to lead. And then secondly, make sure you tell your kids a better story than the world is telling them. And that goes back to how you uh, deal with your own flaws, how you orchestrate the priorities of the family, 
what's important, what time is spent on, what is part of your life, what is part of other people. All those plans, they have to be baked into this idea that you must tell a better story to your children than the world is telling them. That's why if you're not telling it the right way, you may think you're telling that story, that the gospel is the most important thing in life. But that's not what's being communicated. Anything but might be communicated. I heard of pastors recounting a situation where a person came to them for counsel. One of the church members who had some troubles at home. And they were with his kids, one in particular. And... Uh, the way he is recounting what took place, uh, this pastor had the courage to tell this person what he was seeing. Because he was asked, I need help. He said, well, you might not want to hear this. It's hard to hear, but here's what I'm seeing, and here's how I would help you. Your participation in this church that your children don't want anything to do with is, is basically at a spectator level. You're not involved in any of the groups, people, programs. You're here, and when you're here, it's spectator only. When you're here. And what I'm afraid is happening is that what you may say is important, your kids know is not. And the story that the world is telling them is much more interesting, much more adventurous, uh, feeds more into their rebellion than bringing them here every now and then and let some guy with an old book gripe at them for a while. What they think is this whole thing is just a scam based on the way it is part of your life. What you need to do is figure out a way to start telling the story of the scriptures as opposed to the story of the world. And I can help you with that, but that's what you got to do. So this actually made sense to the father. And he went home and he talked to his kids. We're going to invest in this according to its importance. In other words, we're going to put our resources into what we want to be the treasure of our heart. So they found a specific place within the church through a ministry that had to do with some underprivileged kids. And they put a lot of time and hard work into it. And over time, he came back to the pastor and said, all those issues I had have disappeared without addressing any of those issues. But what we've got now is a story that's more interesting than the world's story. Because it doesn't make sense to a kid to talk about a gospel that you only need in order to get saved and then you put it in a box and bring it out only when you need it or to look spiritual. And you don't share it with anybody else. That box that says important doesn't really look important. But then you got the world who does the same thing and says it's important. But if you try those promises that they make, they all seem to fall flat. And they don't fill the hole. And if you do it right, the story of the gospel shows the story of the world to be the scam. Right? That's what parents have to do. And it might not even work. Because they're their own people, responsible to God. And in the end, they may very well break your heart. But under God, it's our responsibility 
make sure we know we're first lost and need the gospel. And then we're going to tell the story the way it was told to us and hope that our kids are as excited about it as we are. And if you think you're talking like a scam artist, fix it. Because they're not going to buy it. Does it make sense? This thing with Gideon, what we tolerate in moderation, his problems weren't that big a deal. And he might have been able to handle a little bit of power trip in moderation. But what he thought was under control in moderation became his son's excess and destroyed him. And there might be something in your house that's not necessarily bad or part of your schedule or whatever. And in moderation, it's fine and dandy. God might have even made it and given it to you as a gift. But if you stretch it past that, don't be surprised if your kids don't say that's where it's at. Spend their lives going after that instead. And then it becomes an excess and ruins them. Second, retribution. This is another thing we see here. We'll pick up the pace here. Sometimes God doesn't act in mercy. Sometimes He gets us what we deserve. And twice in this story, we're told that God settles the score between Abimelech and Shechem, who worked together against the family of Gideon. Here's what I wrote down. I thought it sounded good out of something I read. People tend to get the leaders they deserve. You ever thought through that? Boy, that'd be fun to get into, wouldn't it? People get the leaders they deserve. Mm. In this case, God gave the people, Shechem, the king they deserved, Abimelech, and gave Abimelech, the king, the subjects, that'd be Shechem, that he deserved, and in the end, they, they killed each other. Sometimes God, and this is as dramatic as you'll see anywhere else in Scripture, an observance of divine application of the principle of retribution. Sometimes we, we gaze at the gospel so much that we forget that there is this thing called God's wrath and that it will be poured out on those who do not trust His Son as Savior. It's called retribution. And we can't erase it out of our Bibles. The same God who clothed Gideon with His Spirit to deliver them from Midian, sent an evil spirit to make sure the destruction of his son and those who worked with him. So the point here is when we walk away from God, we should not be surprised to find ourselves on our own. That was the difference. Israel completely walked away from God and said, Baal is our God. And shouldn't be surprised that God said, Do you want Baal? You got it. And the man whose nickname was Let Baal Contend actually brought Baal back from the dead. And that's what destroyed these people. Then there's power. That's another theme. The desire for power on the part of Abimelech turns out to be his own destruction. Although it may look like the free decisions of those involved in the story determine the steps of its narrative... All play into the work of God's hand. God is in firm control of all that happens in this story. We're seeing at least twice. God sent a spirit and then God returned it all on their heads. So even though it looks like we're in control and you would have thought everybody involved in this story was, they were playing into God's hand. Point. This is number three. We tend to seek power only for our own self-interest. And in so doing, rob God of His rightful glory. 
Power and glory go together. You can't say, I want the power and I'll give God the glory. It doesn't work. When you say, I want the power, it's for your own self-interest. And it's like saying, I want the glory. And again, you could use point one. Gideon's flaw is Abimelech's failure. And then the last category is salvation. And this is as far as the gospel description. What do we do with all this? The darker the stories get, the clearer God's plan for salvation becomes in the book of Judges. We really want really bad to dig some moralistic gem out of this ash heap, don't we? I mean, lots of churches might just quit with that. What we tolerate in moderation, our children will tolerate in excess. That's good. That'll preach. I'll go home and try better. You've still got a, a heart that's wicked and deceptive and will lie to you and has promised God's wrath unless that heart is changed. The truth of all this story... Uh, Israel's problem wasn't the Canaanites. It wasn't the the, uh, Midian. It wasn't Abimelech. Israel's problem was Israel. They'd forsaken their God. They didn't need their situation fixed. They needed their heart fixed. And no new political system would help them with that. We we like to think with political reform. We'll put this guy in charge. Well, he's no good. We'll put this guy in charge. That's not going to do it. They're band-aids. And... If it's like my house, you find a lot of those band-aids stuck to a carpet somewhere, rolled up in the corner. You can't sweep them up or vacuum them because they're stuck. You can't get rid of them. That's what these are like. What we need is a Savior. And we need to remember that this Savior, who sometimes gives us what we deserve, in the end gives us mercy. In that while we were yet sinners, what did God do with His Son? Sent Him to die for us. So all of these things point to our need for a Savior. This last point, our greatest problem is a heart problem. Our heart must be changed. We don't need a Savior that can fix our situation. We need a Savior that can fix us. The men and judges were all broken saviors, and these last two were the worst so far. Their failures point to Jesus. Jesus is the true Savior. Jesus was the opposite of Gideon and Abimelech and all the others. Jesus was offered kingship by the devil himself. Jesus said, I've come here to serve, not to be served. And in obedience, subjected himself to the cross, punishment of his father for our sins. And then as far as Abimelech goes, oh, and there's another. Jesus never asked of gold from his people in order to make himself some pagan robe like Gideon did. And Abimelech, who wasn't worthy to rule, Jesus was. He would have made a fine shepherd. But then the world killed him. And did he send fire out from himself and destroy the whole world who mistreated him? No. He just gave them plenty of time to make sure they understood his gospel through services like this so that they could be saved. That's what Jesus has done for us. Praise the Lord for a true Savior. Because as far as the book of Judges goes, and as far as the American experiment goes...
It's not working. But as far as Calvary goes, it's sufficient. If we'll trust Him by faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for another look into your word and another clear picture of grace. Lord, we deserve punishment, but you've given us grace. May we not thwart that grace, waste it, refuse it, ignore it. Such a great salvation. But may we receive it, remember our weakness before you, and proclaim it to others. Lord, bless our homes. May we tell the story clearly, complete with interest and adventure, with heartache and sorrow, with honesty and pain. But may that story outshine the lie of the devil. And Lord, may we be proud of our children. Not because they're like us, but because they're like you. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We ask all this in your name. Amen.